Open up your Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. Would anyone like a Bible? We have Bibles in the back. We can raise your hand if you want one and we can bring one to you. You don't even have to leave your seat. Everybody's good? Everybody's got their Bible? Good. I hope that you got it close to you. Um, This morning, as we get into chapter 3 of 2 Peter, this uh, this is a fun chapter for us to look at. Peter knew, as we've said, that his life was nearing its end. He realized that he was going to be killed very soon. And it caused him to think about the end of all things, not just his own life's end. He started thinking about big picture, the end of things. And this is where he's going to turn in this final chapter of 2 Peter. He's going to turn his focus as he wraps up the letter purely to the end times. Um, and and, and we, we know as we study through the Gospels that Peter and the other disciples asked Jesus about the end times while Jesus was still with them on earth. It was a question that isn't just happening now in our time where people say, how is this all going to end? It was happening back then, 2,000 years ago. And these disciples wanted to know and ask Jesus a lot, Lord, how is the world going to end? How are all these things going to come together and wrap up and, and be completed? And, and actually, we, we have quite a bit of information in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24 and 25, that's really the primary place that we see what Jesus had to say about end times. Now, uh, people have always had these kinds of questions, the big life questions, Right? Not just about the end times and how that relates to God, but even the, the big life questions that people ask all the time of like, uh, is there a God at all? And, and how did we get here? Does my life have a meaning or a purpose? Where do I fit in the universe? Is there life after death? How did this world begin? And how is this world gonna end? Right? Those are questions that people have always asked. People are still asking that all the time. How Once they, they have an understanding of where they are in the universe or that they have senses, they try to figure out, well, where am I really in the universe? Are there aliens out there? Is there life on other planets, right? These are all the kinds of questions that people ask. Now, I have heard that people say that the Bible answers every question you could ever ask. You you might even heard pastors say that, right? The Bible will give you every question that's ever asked is right here. Guys, that's not true. (laughs) I hate to break it to you. It's not true. The Bible does not give us every answer to every question we could ever ask. In fact, there are a lot of things that the Bible leaves unanswered. And we're actually foolish to try to create answers that it doesn't give. But that's what people want because we always want answers. We want our answers to our questions. We know that if we've got a question, there is an answer and that's true and we want it, but we can't always have it. Instead, what the Bible does do, it doesn't answer every question in the universe, but what it does do is it gives us all the answers that we need for salvation and eternal life. If you remember at the beginning of 2 Peter, he says it in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, his divine power has granted to us 
that pertain to life and godliness. It doesn't say it gives us answers for all things and every question under the sun that you could ever ask. He doesn't talk about that. He says, but the things that really matter for life and holiness, uh, the salvation and eternal life, it does give us an answer. Now, I set that up this way because even though the Bible doesn't give us every answer about the end times, it does have quite a bit to say about the end of history. Okay, now, if you were to go to a Bible college or a seminary or get a master's degree in theology, one of the terms that you would study, one of the, the, the areas of study that you would look at is called eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschaton, just means the end. It's the study of the end. In fact, in theology, there's an entire section of theology that's just focused on the end times on the end of all things, eschatology, that's what it's called. And this natural curiosity that people have about eschatology pushes some people into obsession over it. Have any of you met anybody like this? Where all they wanna think about and talk about when they talk about the Bible is the end. Is this the end? Is that the end? You look at their Facebook feed and it's like, this is the end. You know, 14 reasons of why the end is near. And all they would have thought, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end. If you go into a, a, a bookstore and you go into the Christianity section, you'll see a huge section of books and novels and histories and all these things about the end, the end, the end, right? It, it's out there. And some people get really obsessed with it. And what they do is they take the Bible and they move into like investigator detective mode. They're like, I know that for centuries nobody's found it out yet, but I will. I'm gonna count all the letters backwards from the end of Revelation to the beginning of Genesis. I'm gonna divide it by four and a half because four and a half goes to here. I'm gonna do this and that. I'm gonna crack the code. There's, guys, there's people that are out here like this, all right? And there's books like this. There's been all sorts. You could go back in, in history, even over the past 50 years, where you see these different dates that these people give. You know, I, I know one of them was in 1988. And this was back in the 70s that some guy figured it out. And he's like, I figured it out. It's on this day in 1988, the end. And I can prove it because of this is what it says in the word. Well, guys, 88 came and went, right? <laughs> and then people had it. Oh, 2000, the year 2000, Y2K. Everything's gonna melt down. Every computer is gonna be obliterated. The world will stop and Jesus will show back up on January 1st. It's guaranteed to happen. This is what happens. People get fired up about this stuff. And, and, and I don't mean to diminish, hear me, I don't mean to diminish the importance of studying these things. All right? And knowing what the Bible says about them. Because the details that we do have are in here for a reason. All right? And there are some things that we know about the end times. So what I'm trying to tell you is the Bible has not given us all of those answers that we might want. They're not in there. And you can try to twist things and, and, and create lemonade out of whatever you find here and say, this is what it says, but it's not all there. And, and there's a reason that that's the way it is because the things that are not there are absent for a reason as well. You have to understand, and I know this is frustrating for people, but you have to understand that the end times are surrounded in mystery. 
okay? They're surrounded in mystery. And these are one, this is one area of scripture of the Bible that is just a mystery. And at the end, I've, I've had some people make, make fun of me because I'm the pastor that often says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know all of the details of this. And there's a lot of things that I don't know and no one knows and no one is going to know that they are mysterious. Guys, I don't know why innocent babies die. I don't know why there's hunger in this world. I can point out some reasons. I don't know why there are always wars and people will, there will never be world peace. (laughs) We don't know all those answers. There's, There's certain things that are surrounded in mystery. And the end times are one of those things. Now, although he gave us many details and signs, Jesus, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus himself confirmed and accepted that a great deal of mystery was involved in the end times. And he didn't ask us to try to figure it all out. In fact, out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 24, 36, when he was having this discussion... Told you, it's Matthew 24 and 25 where he talks all about end times of the disciples. Right in the middle of those two chapters, he says there in verse 36, but concerning that day and the hour, talking about the end times and when God comes, returns and all that, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus himself says, I'm the Son of God and I don't know when this is all gonna happen. So we have to accept the fact that that is what Jesus said and that is what the Bible teaches us. But what he did encourage the disciples in those chapters, if you go and study them on your own, what he did encourage was that we, heart, soul, mind, and strength, would be ready for his return whenever that might be. So he said, you're not going to have the exact moment in time that you can put on a calendar and write your book and make your money and tell everybody and do the world tour telling everybody, here's the date. You're not going to have that. But what I can tell you is everybody should be ready. You got to be ready. And that is the same position that Peter carried and teaches here as he begins by describing a group of people that will appear in the last days, okay? So here's where we pick up in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, let's walk through that. First off, as you you look at verse one there, this is the reason that we call 2 Peter, 2 Peter. It's because it was the second letter that he had written to the followers of Jesus and to the believers, to the church. It's the second letter that he wrote that would be distributed around to all the different believers. And he says here in this second letter, what he's doing is he is setting up reminders for us. 
Now notice there what it is that he says that we need to be reminded about. He says, I want to remind, set up these reminders so that I can stir up a sincere mind. Understand this. This letter, 2 Peter, is not meant to present new information. 2 Peter isn't in our Bible because it, that it, it describes something brand new or some new theological concept or some idea or some insight to, to God. That's not why it's here. And, and Peter tells us straight up right here, he says, that's not why I'm writing this letter. I'm not trying to teach you anything new. What I'm doing, remember, is I know I'm not gonna be here on earth very much longer. I wanna remind you of the things that really matter for your life going forward. And one of those things is I need to stir up a sincere mind. So this isn't meant to be a textbook on the end times. That's not what he's trying to do. But reminders about what the prophets and what Jesus and the rest of the apostles had always taught. Now when we say a sincere mind, the, the word here, what he's, what he's defining is it's something that is pure or complete a sincere mind being a mind that has all of the knowledge that it needs to have. It's full, it's complete, it's sincere, it's true and genuine, all right? Um, the, the opposite of that would be an insincere mind, which would be not honest in expression or there's, there's parts that are left out, all right? So he says, I'm, I wanna get you back up to full level, the level ground again, in case there's some things that you've forgotten. Um, let, let me illustrate it this way. When I was in school, way back when, I was pretty good in math. I got an A in calculus in high school, okay? I was pretty good at math. But right now, when I sit down with my sixth grader and try to figure out math with her, guys, I have not touched math in forever. <laughs> so I'm stumped half the time on sixth grade math. She's got her book there and everything else. I, I want to have that, say that I've got a sincere mind in math. I know what's going on. I got it all together. I, I've, it's all level. It's not level. It's so, I'm missing huge holes. I'm like, oh yeah, distributive property. I remember there's something in that. You know, I, multiplication I can barely do anymore. I, I don't touch it. Don't look at it, right? There's, a, there's a, a breakdown of what was there in my mind. This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, I don't want you to have a breakdown in some of your mind. I want you to understand all that you need to understand. I want you to be reminded of the things that you've already been taught. It's almost a primer on some of these things so that you're up to speed, that your mind is ready for all that's gonna happen in this. And you, you need to be aware of this. And he says there, I'm gonna stir you up by, a, by your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you would remember these things. And back in, in chapter one, Peter taught us that the words of the prophets were confirmed by the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. He told us that, that there's an importance and a value in the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he's referring to when he talks about the prophets or when he talks about the law. And he says, yeah, we always had these ancient texts that we as Jews, in his case, we studied as our religious books and we read them and we studied them, but we weren't real sure. But then Jesus showed up. And when Jesus showed up, what did he do? He said himself, he said, I came not to discard all that. I actually came to fulfill all that. And that's what he did. 
And so the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, they fit into the grand scheme of what God was doing. And when Jesus showed up, he confirmed those things and affirmed the teachings that were there. And so that's what he's saying here. He says, I want you to remember the predictions. Go back to that again. Remember what the prophet said. Remember also the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. See, remember, this is now in the 60s, late 60s um, in history, okay? Around 68 AD is when most, most scholars assume that Peter was probably executed, all right? Not 1968, 68, <laughs> just 68, all right? But if you'll remember, Jesus, born and died right around in the early 30s, this is about 30 some odd years later after Jesus has already died and resurrected. So that's enough time, trust me. I forget math and I haven't been out of school that long, you know. But 35, 40 years or so have passed. So it's easy for these people to say, wow, yeah, I mean, I remember hearing about these things. I knew some of this, but I've forgotten some of this. I've lost some of this. And he wants to remind us of those things to bring us back to the foundation of truth and say, this is how you're going to be able to build your faith. and This is how you're going to, to move forward. The other thing that Peter told us um, earlier in this, this letter was he said, and not only that, not only did Jesus come and, and confirm the prophets, confirm the law, what he also did, if you'll remember, is he said, and remember, we as some of the disciples, we were eyewitnesses of Jesus's glory. And we talked about that moment that Jesus was transfigured before the disciples on the mountain and how God came and spoke in the cloud and said, this is my son. So Peter has always taken that and conveyed those stories to all the people that he taught and said, this is how I have authority to say these things. It's not because of who I am, it's because of what God chose me to experience in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so all I'm doing is I'm passing on this information to you. And I want you to take this information, hold it for your own souls and continue to pass it on to generation to generation to generation, all the way until that's what we're doing here this morning, okay? The message that we preach and the faith that we hold is grounded in these truths that go all the way back to Jesus. But, Here's what he says. And here's where we start leaning into the end times end of things. He says, but people will question the legitimacy of these things and they will scoff at the truth. All right? The haters are gonna hate and the scoffers are gonna scoff. There's your, your little saying as it goes here. What on earth is the word scoff? Nobody uses that. Nobody says, quit scoffing at me. <laughs> um, you can bring it back if you want, okay? Scoff. What is this? And what is a scoffer? All right, the, the dictionary definition for you here on scoff is to mock, to doubt, or deride. Speak bad about. That's what scoffing is. It's when you're mocking somebody. You're doubting what they say. It's, it's a, there's, there's a little bit of, anger in it, a little angst in this. That's what scoffing is. And what he says is, in the last days, there's gonna be people that come up and begin scoffing at the things that you hold to be true. The things that we're teaching you about Jesus, about the prophets, about the Bible. 
there's going to be people that actively go out of their way to say, yeah, whatever. That stuff isn't true. Are you kidding? There's no such thing as any of that. That's the scoffers are, are going to scoff. Now, I think we're in a very interesting situation in our generation now. Because when you think of that word and you think about how so many people are against the teaching of Christianity, you start realizing, okay, I do see that. I see that in our generation. I do see that in our culture. I think that many generations in the past doubted the, God's role in the world, but I don't know if it was as widespread, the, the widespread scoffing at even the idea of God, if it, if it was that way 40 years ago, 50 years ago, I don't know. Some of you have been around on this earth longer than I have. Um, maybe you remember it differently. But what he says here um, is that, that that is going to happen in the end here. People used to, I think, maybe even go through the motions of at least pretending to offer reverence to God. But now that's not even that way. Now people don't even like pretend to kind of revere God. Now it's just like, uh-uh, it's just the way it is. Um, we had a baptism a, a couple months ago. Some of you got baptized. It was beautiful. I don't know if, if any of you that were on the beach heard this. I heard it, but I was out in the water baptizing somebody. A boat came by just in the bay. We were there out there in the public in the bay and a boat came by and somebody on the back of that boat watching us, knowing that it's a group of people here baptizing people in the water, hollers off the boat, there is no God. Now that's a scoffer. I mean, what good did that do them? Got it off their chest, I guess. They see other people being baptized, haven't even addressed the person on the boat cruising by, and they just out of their own, I'm going to scream this at them. I want them to know there's no God. All right? That's a, a, an illustration of scoffing. What would motivate people to want to do something like that? Why would scoffers want to do that at the notion of God? So that's one of the questions that we've got to ask ourselves when we think about this. Peter's telling us toward the end, you're going to see this come up. It's going to rise up. It's going to be more and more prevalent everywhere you go. But why would people go there? Why would they do that? Well, one of the reasons is that they want freedom from their conscience that tells them otherwise. Why is that person standing on the back of the boat and wants to yell at us, there's no God? Because they want to try to tell themselves that's true. But when they got that much anger about it, to me, they're wrestling with something. <laughs> Something's behind that. That's what they're feeling. It's difficult to live a life of blatant sin if you're uncertain whether there's a God or not watching you. It's a whole lot easier to make some conclusion, there's obviously no God, so I can live however I want. That's a whole lot easier. And for some of you who have felt that battle in your lives before, you know, oh gosh, yeah, I'm sinning. I want to do this, but there could be a God or maybe I know there's a God, but I still want to do this. And it's like, oh, that's terrible. It's ripping you in half, right? It's a very difficult place to be. But they'd love to get rid of that. So why not? Let's scoff. Let's all say that there's no such thing as God. Peter says that these people right here at the end of this, he says they're following their own sinful desires. They want to pursue their self-centered interests 
without any scrutiny or shame from the outside or from their own inner voice. Because what we learn in scripture is that the Bible teaches us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, is speaking into people's lives. Believers or not, just humans. Listen to what it says in John 16, verses 8 to 10. And when he, referring to the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, look what he does. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. These are truths that a scoffer does not want to accept. So, they try to drown out that voice by raising their own voice against it. And let me just say this. You've probably met people that have hardened their heart enough toward God or have silenced that voice or pushed it off to the side long enough that they don't sense have any of that conscience anymore. They don't sense that voice anymore in their lives. They've come to the place where they've rejected the voice of God enough or shut it down enough that they're just, they're numb. They're, with, they're without it. It's a scary place for a human to get, but it happens. The Bible talk describes it as a heart being hardened, that it's so hard it can no longer have the voice of God penetrate it. But without knowing it, they're pushing against God himself and this is what the, what he says there back in second Peter chapter 3 verse 4 follow along he says they will say these are the scoffers where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation you ever heard people say that right they say well okay I've heard you talk about God and how God carries you through your hard times and all this. I also know that one of the things that all you Christians say is that someday God's coming back. Jesus is gonna part the clouds and I've heard the story, right? This is what they say. Well, where is he already? I mean, things have been going on and on and on like this for a real long time. Guess what? Scoffers were scoffing this way back in, back in Peter's day, 2,000 years ago. I mean, the people today at least have an extra 2,000 years of history to add to their argument. And that's what they're saying. They're like, look, you've been saying from the beginning that this Jesus guy is going to show back up and make all things right. Where is he? Get lost up there somewhere? Where, where is he at? And there are, let's just point this out. There are legitimate arguments that people make against the existence of God. Legitimate arguments. And in many cases, these are genuine people trying to really make sense of things, all right? They're using the logic and reason that God has given them to try to understand their own experience. They don't see it that way, but there are still legitimate arguments that people would make. Now, some people even believe that if there was a God who created the world at some point, billions and billions of years ago, that he, she, or it uh, are gone and never have had any further interaction with this earth or its inhabitants, right? So some people will say, well, yeah, there, there was probably a God. I mean, we had to get here somehow. So we'll, we'll chalk that one up to God. 
but there is no God anymore. That God left or went to a different universe or a different galaxy. And, and their thought is that humans are simply the result of natural evolutionary process that are no different than any other organism in the biosphere. They might say, well, yeah, we're a little more complex, but really there's no difference between an amoeba and primordial ooze than us. It's just that we have more cells than they do. But we're essentially the same. But this argument presented here is really questioning an anchor point of the entire Christian faith. That is, that Jesus will return. The Christian faith says Jesus will return. Their argument says, well, you say he's going to return, but where is he? Why isn't he here yet? You've said that for centuries. I've never seen him and the world keeps on spinning. That's a good question. But guess what? Christians ask the same thing. (laughs) You ever ask that question? I've asked it many times. It doesn't take long. You see tragedy in the world. You see pain. You see suffering. You see sin. There's been many times where I've said, Lord, come back already. (laughs) Please, let's wrap this thing up. (laughs) I can't take this. (laughs) Right? We have that in our heart. So even though Christians ask the same thing, even though that's a good question, it's not proof for or against God's existence. The only proof will be if he one day shows up or does not show up. But until then, it's just a question. You can ask the question, well, where is, where is God? He said he's going to come back and he's not here yet. Yes, that's true. He's not here yet. And yes, he did say he's going to come back. Where is he? I'm not sure. But does that prove that there is no God? No, just proves he's not here yet. And we agree on that part. (laughs) He then, Peter then goes on and questions the logic of even that statement. He says in verse five, he says, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And... That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He says that these scoffers are making a faulty claim. Because one of the things that they say is, this has always been this way from the beginning. And Peter says, well, hold on. Not from the very beginning. That's not how it's always been. No, in fact, he says, the, the world was created by the word of God. That he spoke it into existence. And so he argues that no, God has intervened. Creation itself is an intervention of God, as well as, then he goes and talks about a historical flood from Genesis 6 to 8, the the flood of Noah. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but the counter-argument, their argument is going to be the same. Well, you weren't there either at the very beginning, so how do you know? I understand that's what the Bible says, that God created And I understand the Bible says that there was an ark and Noah was on it, which is crazy with all those animals floating around and everybody else died. I understand that's there, but you weren't there either. Yeah, you're right. And, and, And so they say, well, how do you know those stories are true? What the Christian's response is, this is what God told us is how it happened. Believers and non-believers both wrestle with mystery. That's what I want you to understand here. 
There's mystery surrounding a lot of things. And both of us on both sides wrestle with mystery. The difference is this. They argue from a lack of evidence. They say, I don't see that he has returned. We argue from the presence of evidence. We say, no, actually, we've been given the written word of God. We've seen God intervene in different ways at different times in history. So we say we believe that there is a God and these are the reasons why. They say we don't believe in God because we don't see any reasons why. Both believers and non-believers wrestle with mystery. And to put it bluntly, the way Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you understand what Paul, maybe the greatest theologian to ever live, said about God? He says, listen, if the only hope we have is for this life, if this whole Christianity thing has been just this farce that we've been following all along, if you're gonna pity anybody anybody on earth, it should be us. Why? Because we've devoted ourselves to following after this fairy tale. We've given our time and our energy and our money, our brains, our hearts, our souls. We've poured everything into this. And Paul says, look, if it's only for this life that we're doing all that, you should pity us. However, the inverse is also true. If Christ is who he says he was, if God has done what he has said he has done and his plan is true, there's some people that should be pitied, but it's not the believers that have followed with him. It's the other side. It's those who have said, well, I didn't see him. I didn't see him. So I don't believe in him. I don't think he's there. This is where the pity should fall. Do you see this tension that's happening here? If this isn't the case and what we do preach is true, then it's the scoffers and those who have rejected the gospel that that are the ones to be pitied because only one side of this argument can be true. Either God is or God is not. Either Jesus is who he says he was or he was not. I know we live in a time and era where we like to pretend that truth is relative and we can kind of make truth however we want it to flow and go. It's not. It is or it isn't when it comes to a question like this. So then Peter now Remember, he's talking to believers, so he's not trying to convince the scoffers. What he says is, oh, and by the way, also remember this part. He says in verse seven, he says, by the same word, the the word that created the heavens and earth, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Also based on the prophecies of scripture, and the teachings of Jesus, Peter tells us that just as God intervened with a supernatural flood that destroyed the population of Noah's day, the day will come when God will intervene with a supernatural fire that will destroy the heavens and earth that now exist. Now this is an interesting shift that Peter makes here. He tells us at the beginning, okay, let's talk about some end times. There's gonna be scoffers that are gonna come. They're gonna show up. They're gonna say, this is why we don't think there's a God because we haven't seen him. You know, and what you've been taught is no, actually there is God. 
And as we'll see next week, the reason this God is taking so long to get back is because he really loves his creation and he loves people and he's patient and he doesn't want anybody to perish. We're not there yet. But what he does say is, but don't forget this. What we also know is that same word of power that created the earth is going to be the same word of power that ultimately wipes this earth out and establishes a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a time of judgment that is going to happen. Because what we're seeing is he's actually changing our heart like, towards scoffers, but we'll get there. Um, in 2 Peter 3.10, we'll be looking at that in the future, not today. But he, he says this, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus, back in Matthew 24, says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And later in verse 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. So the way that the, 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 the timeline goes, and, and guys, like I told you, there are so many different opinions of the way the end time line goes. And there's so many little fragments and splinters that go this way and that way. And where's a tribulation? And is there a tribulation? And where does this millennial reign happen? Or is there a millennial reign? And all these things that happen. There's a lot of questions and we're not gonna try to tackle all those today. But what we do know is that somewhere in that timeline, what's very clear is that there's going to be a time of judgment. A time of judgment. When God will send the righteous to eternal life into a new heaven and new earth that he will create and the unrighteous to a place of permanent separation from God. Okay, this is a big chunk, but I, I, I wanna read it to you here today. In Matthew 25, Jesus talking about the end times and he says this, he says, when the son of man, that's another reference to himself, Jesus, when Jesus comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, everyone who has ever lived in the scope of history. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then down in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you see why Peter would turn to such a heavy theme in his last letter to the church? I've told you, it's like the end of his life. He realizes, I, I only have a few words left to get out to these people. What do they need to hear? What do they need to know? And he says, one of those things that they need to know is they need to understand that a lot is at stake here. Because what we have to remember is that there is a time coming when people, human beings, 
will be judged for their acceptance or rejection of the path of salvation. And that decision is an eternal decision. And we are finite human beings. We cannot comprehend eternity. We have a hard time picturing years, not decades, not to mention eternity. And he says, this part matters. And the reason this matters is because there are going to be so many people that want to reject this or want to refuse this or want to pretend that this isn't the way things are. A great deal is at stake. These are matters of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. And so Peter is challenging us not to forget the important things. Because let's face it, even as believers, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the busyness of life and forget all about this stuff. I mean, I don't know about you, but in the past, I don't know, six months, how often have I thought about the judgment of God that's coming? Or the end times? You know, it's easy for us to kind of think about it for a little while and say, okay, I can't really answer that. It's a mystery. Eh, I'll just push it off and go about my life. I got things that are happening. There's things coming across my desk. I'm getting messages. I need to go here. I need to do that. I need to go shopping. I need to change my socks. I need to do, you know, whatever. There's stuff of life that happens, right? And we can get caught up in the busyness of all that and lose sight of some of these things. But we can't settle once our own salvation is secure. Because that's the other thing that happens with Christians. They hear a message like this and like, oh yeah, that's true. Mm, those poor people. It's not going to be good for them. I'm glad I'm good. And then go on about life, right? That's, we're self-centered. No matter how giving we are, we tend to shift that way. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to be there. All right, And as we begin to change our mindset about these scoffers, about these people that are questioning our faith, even about the person yelling at you from the back of the boat, there is no God. Our immediate response is, I don't like that person. If I was on the back of that boat, I'd be shoving them in the water, you know. But no, what we have to be reminded of is, no, but actually remember, there's judgment coming for that person, that soul. How can we shift our view of those that would criticize us or doubt the, the faith. How do you handle that criticism that comes toward you against your faith? Because you, when we get pushed even a little bit by somebody who scoffs at our faith or the idea of God, it usually result, results in some sort of action because that's what we are as people. That's what we do. Like any confrontation, some people fight back and some people pull back. And you probably know the difference of who you are as a person. <laughs> it's the same way when we're attacked for our faith or pushed for our faith. But if we're reminded that the things, that these things matter, that Jesus will return, the judgment will occur, staying silent is probably not the best response. Neither is attacking those that would scoff at you. Scoffers will come and how do we handle them? Well, Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We are to be people that are bringing light to the world. You know, I sometimes am a little more like James and John were in the, the gospel of Luke chapter nine when uh, a, a city in Samaria rejected Jesus. 
Jesus and the disciples, the 12, they come to this little city in Samaria and the people are like, we don't want to have anything to do with you or your type. Get out of here. And these guys have been traveling all day. They were hoping for a place to rest, get something to eat, you know, get some water to drink, whatever. They said, get out, don't even come into our town. James and John, you know what they had to say? They come up to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we're enjoying this newfound power that you've given us. We've been healing the sick. We've been casting out demons. You want us to burn down the village? We will call down fire from heaven and light them up. What do you say? That seems about right for these people. And Jesus is like, guys, you don't understand the program. That's not what we're here to do. And even though our natural response when somebody comes and scoffs at us, makes fun of us, mocks us for our faith, our response might be, I'm gonna get them. I'm gonna bring down the fire. That's not what our response is supposed to be. Jesus, how did he handle the people that rejected them, rejected him, even crucified him? He loved them. He chose to love them and tell them the truth. We're called to do the same. In Jude 20 and 23, it says this. I'm almost done here, guys. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We gotta wait. He's not here yet. Keep waiting. And look, have mercy on those who doubt. That's the same word that could be scoff. Save others by snatching them out of that fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Sometimes Christians mistakenly believe that we are still on this earth to bring fire to the world. You'll hear it. There's preachers that preach with a lot of fire that they're here to bring. But that's not what we're here for. We're actually here to try to guide people, as many people as it says there in Jude, away from the fire. We're trying to snatch them out of the fire. We get confused because we are here to bring light, not fire. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the ha- in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Yes, there's judgment coming. And yes, God is going to bring fire one day to this planet. He's gonna make all things new. There's gonna be a whole new heaven and a new earth that's gonna be perfect without the fallenness that we experience here. But we leave the fire part to him. Our job at this point is just to bring light. Let him save souls. So wherever you find yourself this week, may you bring light, the light of Christ, everywhere you go.